Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Night King is coming. The dead are already here. Bent the knee. I'm not king in the north anymore. I'm not talking about the king in the north. I'm talking about the king of the bloody seven kingdoms. What do we say to the god of death? Not today. We have won the great war. Now we will win the last war. Welcome to science-ish. Hello and welcome to Science-ish, coming to you live from the Underbelly Festival. It's really praying for a woo, got a woo, delighted, great stuff. Uh, I'm Rick Edwards, joined as ever by Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. There it is, classic, classic. Michael Brooks, hello, the trademark. Uh, now, for those uh, who are not lucky enough to actually be here physically, but who are listening back to the podcast, I will paint you a picture. We're in a, a very large blue tent on London's South Bank. Uh, and is absolutely rammed with people. It is. It is it's dangerous. Can... There's people, people on the rafters. They're quite quiet, considering how many of them there are. I mean, I can't quite see to the back row. There's but... people... No need, no need. Uh, there's people sitting on laps. There's people on the rafters. It's crazy in here. Wow. Um, now, I'm assuming that most of you who are in here are familiar with the, with the podcast, but for those of you who may have been dragged here by a loved one, uh, first of all, uh, <laughs> not, cheer up. Not love for long. Yeah, you're in for an absolute treat. Uh, and secondly, uh, this is what we do. So we explore the science and popular culture by looking at a film or a book or it could be a short story. Never um, a play. Never a, it's never a play. Uh, and it never, it never will be a play. Uh, and we try to answer one big scientific question. Uh, and tonight we are going to be tackling Game of Thrones. Oh, yes. I mean, this is a special occasion for us. Normally we do one big question, but uh, tonight we are going to give you three big questions. You are so welcome. So welcome. <laughs> uh, what are the big questions we're so, going to be asking? So the first big question we're going to ask tonight is, can you build an ice wall that big mm-hmm. without using magic? Uh, and then uh, I've been... It's a very science-ish. It's called science-ish. Um, uh, this is the one I've been looking forward to uh, for ages, uh, predominantly because I'm an only child, I think. Uh, how bad is incest, really? Huh? Incest fan in front row, lovely. <laughs> the third big question we're going to ask, and I never thought I'd say this as a science journalist, could a dragon really fly and breathe fire? Great question. Great question. Um, so, uh, you're up first, Michael. Yes. We're going to deal with this wall. Remind me 
some stats about the wall. When was it built? Who built it? How big is it? That kind of stuff. Well, I mean, as you all know, Brandon the Builder yeah. built the wall about 8,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's meant to keep out the White Walkers, as you know. Um, so um, it's about 300 miles long, 700 feet tall, 300 feet across, which I hadn't quite appreciated it until we started researching this. So 300 feet across. I mean, that's big, isn't it? It's a big old boy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a huge wall made of ice. Yeah. Uh, is there anything comparable that we've ever made in real life? Well, I mean, what do you mean by comparable? Well, I- I've given you quite a lot of real room here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Obviously, we have haven't made anything quite that big, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but we do have an ice wall. And I'm probably going to bring the mood down very slightly here because uh, it's oh, to do with the, the Fukushima earthquake, oh. tsunami, oh, and right. nuclear power uh, plant failure. Mm. Everyone remember that? Nobody's whooping at that, are they? Well, no. No. So anyway, so in order to basically stop the contamination, the nuclear, the radioactive contamination getting out into the sea, uh, engineers have constructed an ice wall. Uh, It's sort of underground, though. So what they've done is they've basically put in a load of refrigeration facilities. And this thing's about a mile long, right, around the site. So, you know, that's a sizable wall. And the refrigeration facilities have uh, basically chilled the water and soil, or the water in the soil. So they pipe in coolants to this stuff. And it goes like 100 feet deep around the Fukushima plant. Mm -hmm. And it cuts off the radioactive water from getting out. We've still got to keep these fuel rods cool. We've got to keep them cooled down with, with fresh water, but we yeah. don't want that water uh, that's been in touch with the cooling rods getting out into the ocean, no. obviously. So we keep it in with an ice wall that we built. And, it, and it's, it's working, is it? It's sort of working. Uh, so, so Sort of working? Well, <laughs> I want I mean, this to be working, don't I? <laughs> these, these things are never 100%, obviously. Uh, but it, it's sort of taken a million tonnes of contaminated water so far. Yeah, uh, and and we've got that in nine hundred tanks still around the Fukushima plant because you obviously you don't want to like take it anywhere else because it's no. highly radioactive. And they've got like a lot of space out there, right? So they've got thirty seven point seven million square foot of space to where they can all store the all this radioactive water. Yeah. We just keep storing this and storing yeah. it behind the ice wall. Yes, uh, yes, until well, it's sort of the space runs out in twenty twenty, as in next year. Next year. <laughs> Yeah. Fucking hell. <laughs> and then what? Uh, nobody Stop knows. sending it out. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we could sell it. I don't Jesus. know. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's people who might buy it, to be honest. There's like health properties or something. I don't think we can even suggest that. No, obviously no, no, no. Um, um, so um, going back to the, the show then, could you... I mean, I, li- I like the ice wall we built. It's good. Yeah, I mean, it's, but could you build a wall that big out of ice? And could it stand for thousands of years? What do you think? Well, I think probably not. <laughs> but when you yeah, tell so, me, it, like, it might be possible. So there's a guy called Martin Troffer, who's a, a glaciologist, and he works at the University of Fairbanks, Alaska. Mm-hmm. Right? And he sort of worked out, he did some calculations for something that's um, about 200 metres high. So, so, you know, it's sort of comparable, maybe. If you built an ice wall that high, um, you know, what would happen? The trouble with ice is, is it sort of starts to flow. You know glaciers? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, glaciers flow basically because they get a certain amount of weight on top of them, and then that just causes them to start flowing, oozing just out. Under just their the own pressure. pressure. Literally under their own pressure. So a glacier will start flowing when it's got about 0.1 uh, megapascals of pressure on it, right? Yeah. And if you build a 200-meter high wall, you've got about 1.8 megapascals. So, you know... We're going to be flowing, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. So, so our ice wall... Even if you cool it down, like, to really, really low temperatures. Yeah, I was going to say. So, 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 like, keep it really, really cold, it still flows after a short amount of time. Even if, like, 
I'm calling it to like minus 40 or something. Yeah, it's, it's like still really flowing. Cold. It's still flowing. How long is it going to stay up for? What's your maximum? <sighs> Give me something here. It, it, it's going to be like months at best before it's just mm. oozed away. And then come on in, White Walkers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> Put your sort of icy w- ramp. Which is why Brandon's <laughs> quote was so high. You know, I mean, because he had to bring in the magicians. Obviously, you can't just do this on your own with a bit of ice. You need a bit of help. Fine, okay, so no, no, just, no, no wall. Yeah. Right. As we might have guessed, the enormous, massive fuck-off ice wall in Game of Thrones, uh, you know, a piece of fiction, actually doesn't really work in real life. Okay, that's I'm fine. quite disappointed by that, but not surprised. Well, we're going to move on to uh, something that very much is possible in real life now. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> I have been waiting. I mean... I'd say years for this next bit, uh, because no exploration into Game of Thrones uh, will be complete without a little trip uh, down Incest Lane. Is uh, that a place? They are. They're all doing it. Um, you know, uh, Jamie and Cersei. Uh, I was furious actually when the <laughs> obviously I haven't gotten to uh, series eight, but Daenerys and John apparently. I was just like, brilliant, thanks guys. And then obviously Craster, who's basically banged all of his daughters. Um, <laughs> So they are, um, in some senses, dismantling the uh, the sort of incest taboo one uh, horrible sex scene at a time. Um, <laughs> but, but, but I mean, okay. So, so what is it about incest that makes it taboo? What disgusts us so much? Is it really? I mean, let's get to the number. Is it really that bad? So the reason that. Biologically, it's probably not ideal. Not it, ideal. As, and we're going to go uh, very, very simplified here. Uh, we all have two sets of 23 chromosomes. One set comes from your mum, one set comes from your dad. If you get a deleterious gene, so uh, a mutation of a gene that is bad from one of your parents, your dad, say, uh, your mum will more than likely have the good copy of the gene and that acts as a backup and therefore the genetic disorder doesn't get expressed and you're okay. However, if you are having a a child with a parent who is a first-degree relative and shares 50% of your genes, that would drastically increase the chances that you will get two of the deleterious genes. That will then be expressed and you have the genetic disorder and various sort of life-shortening issues. That's why it's not good to start with. So what are these issues? Well, I mean, mean, look at Joffrey, (laughs) basically. Uh, I mean, I I should say that none of these issues are exclusively incest-driven. Like, you can... All of these things can can obviously... So it can never actually be proven? No, it it can be proven that you've increased your chances by... uh, I mean, you haven't. It's not really your fault if you've got it, is it? No, no, Oh, good one, Mum and Dad. Sorry, Mum and Uncle, whatever it is. (laughs) Yeah. Um, kind of thing that you're talking about is uh, haemophilia, cleft palate, infertility. There's a, a tribe in, in Zimbabwe, a very small population, who have been dubbed the ostrich people because they have a genetic condition where they're... Bury their, their heads toes, in the sand. No, 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 no. no. Oh. <laughs> their toes... Good, though. Uh, their toes <laughs> sort of fuse together, so they kind of have... Uh, well, it's sort of like they've got bird's feet. Nice. Um, there's a... Uh, microencephaly when you get the very small head uh, which isn't great for your brain development um uh, and then my, actually my um uh i can't you know i can't say favorite my <laughs> what's a 
No, I just I shouldn't have said favourite. Uh, there's another one, uh, which is uh, the Habsburg jaw, uh, which is uh, European royals uh, back in the day where they had the, the big elongated jaw and underbite. Charles II of Spain is probably the most famous exponent of this, um, and he <laughs> exponents interesting choice of words as well. Uh, he I mean, had, he was very proud of it. He had such a severe underbite due to inbreeding that he uh, he couldn't really speak. Uh, he couldn't really chew properly, and he had problems drooling, which I, I sort of <laughs> was like, drooling? What? I'm not sure that, uh, that, that would be my main concern if I was him. <laughs> but if you think about when well, he's drool, drooling over his first cousin. No, you want the drool. <laughs> you want the drool to just be dripping down. He just catching it in his mouth. Oh. So he's just like got a pool of saliva. Oh. Yeah. So anyway, he's having a nightmare. So, I mean, and that was, is and that's why all, they call them kissing cousins? That's all like, <laughs> 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 Well, I'm glad that the people uh, who are listening to this didn't get to see what you just did. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, how high are the risks? You know, Jamie and Cersei, first-degree relatives, brother and sister. Is it a huge problem? It's very hard to say with any any degree of certainty. So we know there are definitely increased risks uh, with, with first-degree relatives, of course, for reasons uh, discussed. Uh, but there's all sorts of factors that you can't really control for. So socioeconomic factors, sociodemographic variables, like the age of the mother, average family sizes. There's all kinds of things that you can't really extract your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And difficult to then work out what your data is telling you. Also, a big issue is that a lot of parents wouldn't want to admit that their child was the, the product of incest anyway. Uh, really? So effectively, it is, it's, it's a minefield in terms of trying to get uh, data on those risks. Right. But data that we do have, so Columbia University did quite a, a long sort of seven-year study recently with um, first cousins, and they found that the... So globally, the chance of having a child with birth defects is... 3%. But if you have first cousin parents, that goes up to between 4 and 7%. And I think that's there's, not terrible. So that's one way of that is one way of looking at it. So that's it, not in, terrible. No, I mean in, yeah, in absolute terms, 4 to 7% isn't bad, but it is also almost double the global statistic. Yeah, but you so double you something are, quite low. Right, okay. I mean you're in a position where you're I mean if you if you want to take a risk Right. You know, the odds are in your favour. Right. Do you feel lucky, punk? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, yeah, absolute risk is quite low. Obviously, there's a bit of increased I wasn't risk. expecting you to be pushing this so hard. <laughs> well, you know, asking for a friend. Uh, Michael said, obviously, don't, don't bring this up. Um, but immediately before we uh, started the, the show, it, you related a, a, an experience you had. When you were younger. Yeah, which I said I wasn't going to talk about. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's, it's relevant, so I think it's nice. I think it's nice. You know I am not going to talk about it. I, think I mean, should... if it had just been us, <laughs> yeah. I'd have talked about it, honestly. Mm. But this thing's going out on the internet. And if there's uh-huh. one thing I've learned in life, it's there's certain stuff you shouldn't put on the internet. Definitely don't want to say it? Definitely don't want to say it. Is it better if I say it? 
I don't think I told you everything, did I? Maybe I, think, I did. Well, I'll try it. All I got was, <laughs> when he was 16, uh, he was quite close to his female cousin, and then she was upset at one point, and he hugged her and, you know, to console her, and got, in his words, a boner or maybe a semi. <laughs> did I get everything? It was definitely more semi. And I remember just being horrified. I mean, that's the thing oh, I remember. Oh, fine then. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was a long time ago, uh, and it's still burning in my mind, clearly. <laughs> but I was 16. I mean, who's 16 doesn't get bonus all the time anyway. Might uh, have just been coincidence. Big up Michael's wife, Philippa, by the way, if she's listening. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, we'll tag her in this one. <laughs> Got yourself a keeper there. <laughs> So look, um, <laughs> thanks, Rick. Yeah, that's no problem. Yeah. It's our last ever podcast, everyone. <laughs> uh, so throughout history, obviously, you know, people have noticed that children of siblings, presumably when they realise what had gone, they didn't do very well, mm-hmm. and that's where the incest taboo starts. Yeah, but. I mean, that's siblings. I mean, siblings is one thing, isn't mm-hmm. it? But you know, that's not your only family, is it? No, no, no. You've got cousins, obviously. Yeah, as, as, as <laughs> you well know, ain't I? Um, and we actually, so we spoke to a guy called Alan Bittle, an emeritus professor of uh, human biology and human sciences at Edith Cowan University, uh, and he wrote a book uh, called Consanguinity in Context. And consanguinity just means uh, a couple who are related as second cousins or closer. Um, we asked him about cousin marriage, and it turns out that it is, like, way more common than you might think. Have a listen. Somewhere between 10 and 11% of people around the world are known to be in consanguineous unions or the children of consanguineous unions. But that means that also people who live in areas where 20 to over 50% of marriages are consanguineous probably account for about 1.1 billion people. So it's a very substantial portion of the global population. And the areas that you would expect to find the highest rates well would be in North Africa and the Middle East, and particularly in the South Asian countries such as Pakistan and or Afghanistan. There are definitely benefits are perceived at least by the people in these communities. The major benefit being social and economic. So one of the big areas that you find consanguineous marriages are in predominantly rural areas as a means of keeping the family land and the family property together. There are many factors to be involved in this. Religion is certainly one of them, but there are social beliefs and, and of course, social traditions. People tend to do what their community did, what their family did over the generations. And in many, many of the world's populations, then cousin marriage is very much favoured. People, unfortunately, in places like the United Kingdom, have tended to way overestimate the ill effects of cousin marriage. It's actually quite difficult to know how risky consanguineous unions are. But at first cousin level, I would reckon that it's somewhere between an increase in mortality or morbidity by comparison with unrelated marriages of about 3 to 4%. In many, many cases, probably 80 to 90% of cases, there is no additional risk with first cousin progeny. But in certain families, You could get two or three children born with specific genetic diseases. Those are the families you want to make available, genetic counselling, genetic education, and if required, if desired, 
prenatal diagnosis for the disorder. Now, I don't want to immediately disagree with anything that Alan said, <laughs> but when he said uh, three to four percent greater risk, he doesn't mean he doesn't mean that. <laughs> it means in absolute terms. Okay. It's right, like 100% right, right, yeah. yeah, so risk. it doubles your risk. Doubles yeah. your initially quite low risk. Yes, yeah. Right. What happens when you go further out in the so family th- tree? So this actually, uh, I was not expecting this when I started doing my research. Uh, there is a reproductive sweet spot, <laughs> and it is your third or fourth cousin. <laughs> Genuinely. <laughs> so... There was a study um, which looked at... Um, <laughs> Quite yeah. the damn sweet spot. I yeah. mean, that's, that's <laughs> lovely, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's, a, it's a reproductive I mean, sweet spot. You can put that on your Valentine's it's a, it's card to your point. cousin. Yeah. <laughs> it's a point of balance between the advantages and the disadvantages. <laughs> so there was a study that looked at... Uh, it's a huge study. 160,000 Icelandic couples. Oh, yeah. Uh, Icelandic couples, between, right. Uh, I think it's like 1800 in the mid, mid-1960s. Ever heard um, the phrase small island? Of, well, this is the thing. That's why it's such a good set, because also, it's not only a small group, but socio and economically and culturally, it's an incredibly homogenous society. Uh, so family sizes are all fairly equal, so you've kind of got everything else controlled for you. And when they looked at it, across generations, a woman mating with her third cousin... Mating? Has... Yeah, I'm going to say mating. Really? What's wrong with mating? What do you want? Mating. Well... I mean, at least say having sex Shagging. with. Say reproducing. That makes us sound a bit more science doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think we've got... Uh, uh, that that ship sailed, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> so, okay. Across, across generations, uh, a woman reproducing uh, with Thank her you. third cousin has on average more kids and grandkids, which is a, a good gauge of reproductive success, uh, than a woman who is uh, mating, reproducing, uh, with her eighth cousin. Well done, <laughs> But that's I mean, extraordinary, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, that it's is good. You, you will be more reproductively successful yeah. if you go for a third or fourth cousin. Yeah. Which, I, I mean... I, I, <laughs> I kind that, of don't know what to say at this point. It's like, am I supposed to say, great, well, yeah, everybody get, get, in, get in touch with... The, I mean, the next family reunion is going to be fantastic, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you're going to be looking around thinking, first, second... Third. That's the sweet spot. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it, so you've effectively you've got this sort of like Goldilocks zone of, of gene matching. <laughs> I love it. Where they are, they're far enough apart <laughs> that you're not getting too much of the the gene matching that we talked about earlier on, but you're not too far away that you could get the, the mother rejecting the, the fetus because there is this sort of slightly odd phenomenon where a mother and fetus can have incompatible blood cells, which then triggers the the mother's immune system to behave as if the fetus is an invader right. and then miscarry. Yeah. Um, and that's much less likely if the parents are more closely related because the, the blood makeup is more likely to match. Great. This is great, isn't it? I'm staggered This is information that you can use, isn't it, really? Yeah, well, you just, you're looking for people who have the same great-great-grandparents as you and then just make a beeline. Do you want to take, take notes on that? Great, great grandparents. Yeah, don't yeah. get it wrong. Or <laughs> <Yeah>. yeah. <laughs> if you are going to get it wrong, too many greats. Yeah, err on the side yeah. of caution, I would say. Um, but there's so- something else I did want to say as well, that there's an interesting um, idea that I think Alan puts forward about purging. So this is saying, that, and it probably doesn't really apply anymore uh, for various uh, sort of social reasons, really, and the kind of group sizes and mobility... But back in the day, 
when humans were evolving, so very early humans, small groups, he thinks that having close relatives breeding would have meant that you would definitely have exposed genetic disorders because they would have been expressed. But that's a good thing because they then get removed from the gene pool. So he thinks actually purging means that you would have kept the prevalence of genetic disorders very low and it would have been a real benefit to humanity. So so basically what you're saying is you have a child that is sort of left out in the cold, effectively? It's like... yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. It doesn't really happen anymore. But back in the day, I think... Yeah. Right. It's not, I, no, I this is not... I've not done that. it. I'm just saying it's like... It's, it's, it's <laughs> I'm not accusing you of having run. done it. I was just... It's helped us in the long run. kind of assaulting me with information I, I don't really like. Um, but I did, I did read... I think I said to you, I read something about a population of lowland gorillas in, in Rwanda. Yeah. That, they did genetic tests on them, and they're incredibly inbred. But yeah. they're all really well and healthy. Yeah. And, and the biologists think it's because they've, they've had so many generations to get rid of the unhealthy ones, effectively, that it's all fine now. That's the purging. So we just kind of need to get over the hump, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. When a, a woman humps her third... Yeah. <laughs> so third cousins, good, right? That's yeah. all sorted. Yeah. Um, and... and we all know somebody, I say we all, who seems to have a, like a penchant for people who look a bit like people from their own family, don't mm-hmm. we? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, can we be attracted to our relatives? Well, Asking for a friend, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's two, um, there's, there's two schools of thought on, uh, on this. So Freud said um, that we have this cultural taboo around incest and it's essential to block our natural attraction to relatives. That's one school of thought. Second school of thought, coming from this uh, sociologist and psychologist called Westermark, is that actually we have a sort of automatic uh, psychological process that means we feel revulsion towards our relatives. Uh, And so uh, some guys did a, a study to try and work out which one was was true. Right. Uh, and so they got a load of people. Um, this is a, a New Mexico State University. Uh, and they asked students to rate the sexual attractiveness of a 100 strangers' faces. And for half of them, immediately before each face, they'd subliminally flash up uh, a family member, so a, a relative. And for the remaining control students, the other half, they'd just flash up a subliminal image of a, of a non-relative. And the students who were presented with a family member rated the strangers' faces as more attractive than the control did, suggesting that actually there is a kind of sexual imprinting. This is what the professor who did the study thought. Sorry, let me, let me just... So when they saw the face of a family member immediately before they saw this other yeah. face, they rendered that, that the face was much more attractive. More attractive, yeah. So the they're kind of primed group. by that, photo, exactly. that subliminal photo. Exactly, yeah. To yeah. be kind of aroused, basically. Yes, sexual imprinting. So it's kind of to do with familiarity. Right. Um, so... Our early experiences, what we're familiar with, we tend to gravitate towards. We find them more appealing. Yeah. That's obviously a... I mean, it's slightly worrying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You haven't told me anything that isn't worrying so far. <laughs> That's not the aim. That's not the aim. I'm just, I'm just okay. talking through whether incest is really that bad. So why aren't the majority of us attracted to our immediate family members? Is it just we are, but we don't know it? Or... A very interesting thing, named after this other sociologist, the Westermark effect, uh, which shows that children who co-reside, so who live under the same roof in their youth, are much less likely to breed with each other uh, when they reach adulthood. And that applies to unrelated children. 
So it's not just about relatives. Uh, so there's okay. this idea that actually you might just, it's almost like familiarity in that case, breeding contempt. Like you, you just, it's like switching something on that says, no, I shouldn't be going for this person. So it's almost like It's a bit like being competing. married for a few decades. Or right. <laughs> asking for a friend again. Hello, Philippa. Like... <laughs> um, but so, and there's, there's some, and this is fairly uh, grim, I think. But, um, oh, good. Would, would you believe? Good. Uh, but... There's lots of records of these so-called minor arranged marriages in uh, in Taiwan. So a major arranged marriage is the one that we're probably more familiar with, where you know adults are set up and then they go off and get yeah. married. Minor, you give your daughter, and it was always daughter, to the family of the people who have the son that you want uh, your daughter to marry when she's very young. So when she's a baby, effectively. Oh, right. Um, and in those instances, they would frequently refuse to consummate the marriage. Um, and anecdotally, you'd kind of have these situations where the, um, the parents are sort of standing outside the room going, how are you getting on in there? How are you getting on in there? <laughs> well, that's off-putting for a start, isn't it? I mean... Yeah, they should just stop that. But it's, uh, and they think that's because they've grown up with one another and you activate these cues that just scream, you need to avoid mating with this person, sorry, reproducing. That chimes with, uh, there's a study I read about where if you um, smell your uh, immediate family members, you, like, they, they, you get them to wear a T-shirt for a day or something, and then you smell that. Yeah, and you yeah. don't like the smell of your immediate family members. It's like you don't, definitely don't want to reproduce yeah. uh, with those people, even though you don't know who that is. So it's mm. like something in your, in your brain says, this is not somebody you actually want to have sex with and i mean which kind of chimes with that whole thing about kissing you know i always going on about this like yeah. when you kiss somebody you're not i mean i mean i don't want to ruin the romance if anyone's on a first date or anything um but <laughs> it might already have ruined it <laughs> <you> think, <laughs> it depends if they're cousins or not doesn't it i mean if you're on a date with your third cousin tonight what a score yeah. sweet spot <laughs> um so so you you when you kiss somebody what you're actually doing is inhaling their scent and you're in, inhaling pheromones I mean, that's the, the kind of what you're doing is effectively testing it. And your brain uh, tells you whether that person is, has an immune system that's actually different enough from yours that you'll kind of be compatible and produce children with good immune systems. Because if your immune system is too similar genetically, uh, then actually the pheromones will put you off. And so it's a kind of way of, of basically telling whether somebody's worth shagging or not. It's, it's no, romantic. reproducing with. Certainly Mating. romantic. What are we going for? Mating. Yeah, no. no, we're going for reproducing. reproducing. You, you didn't like yes, mating no, for no, some reason. No, I never have. Um, the, um, the thing that, um, that I, I kind of like as a, as a thought experiment, really, is that if you go back far enough, we're basically all related. So all sex is a, is a form of... So incest. everything's fine. Yeah, I think so. And we, we asked Alan about this. <laughs> I think it's a matter of guesstimates. If you're trying to work out how related we might be, what proportion of our genes we might have in common inherited from ancestors, either our grandparents, our great-grandparents, or further back in time. Because the way we've calculated these relationships in the past has been taking pedigrees or just asking people a simple question, were your father and mother relatives? Were your grandparents related? We took it as granted, people would tell us the truth on that. They may or may not have told us the truth. But now you can actually identify people who are related or non-related in terms of the genome. He has the better claim to the throne. 
He doesn't want the throne. I'm not sure it matters what he wants. The fact is, people are drawn to him. He loves our queen. And she loves him. If we marry them, they could rule together. She's his aunt. They never stopped a Targaryen before. No, but John grew up in Winterfell. Is marrying your aunt common in the north? In many of the, for example, the Thousand Genome Projects, you can simply do a genome-wide scan of the individuals, and you find in many cases that a highest proportion, 30-40% of them, there is some degree, or there has been some degree, of inbreeding leading to consanguinity. And in a number, 4 to 5% of cases in the Thousand Genomes Project, in fact, are first cousins or even closer. So we know now that there are people who genuinely believe that they're non-consanguineous parentage, but who nonetheless are born to parents who themselves were related to quite a considerable degree. I'm not going to get tested, I don't think. No, I mean, this is why you've got to think carefully about your genome, haven't you? Yeah. And keep it to yourself if you've got any doubts at all. But if you think about the... Um, if you really start going back far enough... I mean, if you go back a really long way, I'm <laughs> quite into the idea that uh, life started 3.8 billion years ago. Sexual reproduction, sex didn't start about 1.2 billion years ago. So for the vast majority of the time, just asexual reproduction, which is really the ultimate incest. Yeah, kind of, yeah. yeah. It is. It's yeah, like, yeah. It's, you know, it's, it, it... Or it's self-love. Yeah, either way, either way. I mean, you shouldn't, like, you know, put a negative I'm, I'm, I'm not perspective a neg- on I'm it. I'm not putting a negative perspective on no, asexual, it. Ex- asexual reproduction is the way to go, really. Um, but if you, if you look at... Um, so just sort of simple maths, you go, okay... Everyone has two parents, so then the number of ancestors you have doubles every generation. So 10 generations ago, you have 2 to the 10,024 yeah. uh, ancestors. And you go back to 20 generations ago, you'll have a million. But then when you get to 40 generations, you've got a trillion ancestors. And that's where you've obviously got an issue, because 40 generations ago, there wasn't a trillion people. Therefore, there must be repeats they are the same people. And so your family tree ends up looking more like a sort of slightly entwined bush as it, as it goes up. Oh, it's, really? It's childish. It's incredibly really? childish stuff. Uh, but so we are all, we're all related yeah. to one another. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to end. go that far back, do you, to realise no, 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 actually no, no, the, no, G- no. The, the pool was fairly small. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, even, I mean, the, the problem we have is, you know, we live in this sort of metropolitan bubble, don't we, where we think, you know, you go everywhere and it's all, all sort of, yeah, it's easy to find people who are definitely not related to you. Mm. But actually in most of the world, that's not the case. Even, I mean, even without going back in history. So I was in China recently. How's he? Uh, <laughs> yeah, beautiful. And, um, and I was astonished in Shanghai to, to find a marriage market where um, people come in from the provinces. <laughs> find a marriage market. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, anyway, so people come in from the provinces literally with adverts for their daughters. So, so you, you would come in and, and you would set it up in the city centre. This is right in the city centre on a weekend. A huge place that's sort of dedicated to it. And you've got the description of the daughter, you know, height, weight, what she's good at. And, and then the mother's phone number or the father's phone number. Because if you're living in, the, in these provinces, you've got a very small gene pool. You've got you know, very little sort of yeah. opportunity to move outside of it. So the idea is just to come into the city and kind of marry off to somebody who's, who's already in the city, probably got a bit of cash as well. But uh, you know, it's sort of a practical escape from the problem. So it was kind of like analogue 
Tinder, but controlled yeah. by your mum, sort yeah. of thing. Hmm. Yeah. Tick, tick. Uh, <laughs> if, if there's any, any venture capitalist yeah. listening for a new idea. Anyway, so, so these are the ways in which, you know, people around the world still have to do this. Yeah. And it's not hard to imagine that, you know, you go back in history, you know, to even like, you know, in the British Isles, you know, much smaller population, much less yeah, yeah, mobile. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're all, we're all interrelated. Really. Columbia did a, Columbia University in America did a, a study and they said from, uh, it looked like from genomic information, 1650 to 1850, uh, the average person was fourth cousins with their spouse. The Perfect, the person. sweet spot. Yeah, so great, great time to be alive. Oh, we uh, think we're living in the golden age, yeah. but no, it was then. No, not at all. By 1950, the average person was married to their seventh cousin, and today it's oh. more like 10th to 12th. So we've actually got a bit slope, of work to do. Yeah. A long way off the sweet spot. I mean, we're way past the golden age, aren't we? Really? Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah. that, I think that, that pretty much concludes all the stuff I wanted to say about incest. <laughs> you don't want to say anything more? <laughs> no, I think, I I think there's enough. nothing else that I don't want to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can, can we talk about something else now, then? Anyone, anyone covertly sexting their cousins? <laughs> None yet. Yeah, there's a phone um, flashing in the corner, though. Let's, um, let's talk about dragons. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's talk about dragons. How, how do they breathe fire, please? Well, um... I mean, obviously, in Game of Thrones, it's fictional, right? So, so, so they they breathe via via unspecified mechanisms. But sure. I, you know, I have to say that I can't help thinking there might have been a moment in our evolutionary history where something breathed fire. Really? Yeah, yeah. Isn't I mean, that? and and maybe wiped itself out straight away. Right. Uh, and tonight, I would like to launch a program of inbreeding, basically, for various species uh, to bring back fire breathing, because I think it's possible. So you can start, for instance, with uh, something called uh, a fulmar, which is a kind of coastal bird. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and you also need a bombardier beetle. Okay. And you probably need some kind of... It's going to look insane, this dragon. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's going to be brilliant. It's going to be brilliant. So you kind of probably need a spitting cobra as well. But you basically, um, I mean, uh, that's probably enough, actually. So what am I getting from the bird? So there's a, there's a bird called a fulmar, yeah. as I said. And it actually, as part of its digestive process, produces an oil that's pretty much like diesel. I do. So, so you've already got a fuel. I mean, if you, if you want to breathe fire, you need oxygen, fuel, and a spark, right? Yeah. It's not hard. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why evolution hasn't done this more. So, um, so, so you've got, like, the bombardier beetle. Right, um, mm-hmm. which has various sort of chambers in its gut, right? And in these chambers of its gut, you've got two glands which contain a mixture of chemicals called catalases and peroxidases, right? Mm-hmm. And then in another chamber, it's got something called hydrogen peroxide and hydroquinones. Yeah. And basically, when it's threatened, this thing opens all the chambers, mixes the chemicals, and they have a chemical reaction which actually heats them up to about 100 degrees C. So inside its body, basically, it just releases this reaction. Little internal furnace. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It heats up to 100 degrees to see. Obviously, would, you know, melt itself. So it shoots this out of its ass. Have you made this up? <laughs> it's absolutely true. So That's it shoots, fantastic. It, so it shoots it out of its ass. Like burning hot liquid coming out of its ass. Obviously, for a I dragon, mean, you want it coming out the other way, but that's just a minor detail. I, listen, I'm not fussing. It's breathing out of his ass. <laughs> I'm like, fair play. <laughs> right, and, and so, so, you know, you can get heat. Obviously, you can get oxygen in there because, you know, you've got oxygen already. Yeah. And what you really need is a spark. And here's where I think evolution has done it, right? Okay. And, and it just was an experiment that didn't last very long yeah. that we need to redo. So birds, 
Yeah. Which are basically modern dinosaurs, right? Yeah. We know the dinosaurs as well, alligators and crocodiles. All of these things have a thing called gizzards. Yeah. Right? You know, you take it out of the chicken, you take it out of the turkey at Christmas, you get rid of the gizzard. The gizzard is a part of the digestive system in which basically the bird or, or reptile or whatever has stones. Mm-hmm. And it swallows stones. And the muscles of, the, of that part of the digestive system, the gizzard, just like massage the stones together. And mm-hmm. what they do there is break stuff down. So if you've got hard seeds that you can't break down properly with your digestive system, basically the gizzard does the job for you. It breaks these things up like a millstone kind of thing. So you're rubbing two stones together. Right? Get a flint in there. So, so I'm thinking get a flint in there. I like it, actually. How hard is it to swallow a bit of flint yeah. and a bit of steel? Um, but, I mean, you know, steel. Steel's steel, amazing. Yeah, steel's not easy to steel, come by. No, no, steel's not that difficult to come by. You know, right, there's, there's stuff around. There's stuff around. And there's kind of natural steels, and it's fine. I mean, it oxidizes fast, so you've got to, you know, have a certain thing. But basically, a flint and steel just works because steel sort of breaks off tiny, tiny bits, which are not oxidized already. And as soon as you expose them to the air, they get really hot, exothermic reaction. And that's where sparks come from. You know, if you're doing angle grinding which yeah. i know you like to do love it yeah um then, then you, that's me. what the sparks are they're just bits of steel flying off and because mm-hmm. they're they're just um just sort of knocked off they're exposed to the air they, they they ignite so all you need is a bird effectively to swallow a bit of flint and maybe some iron or something like that and be massaging that around in its gut yeah and ejecting it so the fulmar has this sort of oil diesel effectively in yeah. its stomach when it's attacked it, it projectile vomits that stuff out at you I'm not speaking just... from personal experience, but, but that's his defense mechanism. Yeah. So imagine if it happened to kind of have a bit of a hiccup at the time. The gizzard goes, knocks the flint into the steel. The diesel's coming out. You've got the thing shooting flame, for fuck's sake. I mean, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's surprised, definitely, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it, it's surprised. Everyone's surprised. But, you know, you're going to get a round of applause for that, aren't you? And, yeah, and really that's only so. one way. I mean, alternatively, you have that kind of same system that the bombardier beetle has. And maybe you just feed bombardier beetles to fulmers. I mean, this is the project that I'm crowdfunding right now. <laughs> you, you feed bombardier beetles to fulmers. So you get those genes all mixed up nicely. Everything's going on. Uh, and you've got fuel, you've got diesel, you've got potential for sparks. And let's be honest, you know, all those legends of, of dragons, mm. maybe they came from a time when, you know, somebody actually saw this happen. When the a once. bird has swallowed a beetle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, it's, it's not impossible. I can see a way in which evolution could make this happen. And evolution tries everything. Yeah, some yeah. things work, some things don't. What I think this, the, uh, this could work. Is, you mentioned a cobra. <laughs> Why oh, I yeah, a cobra? So the, I forgot the cobra. Obviously, you, maybe you, I don't know how you get the cobra and the former to mate. I mean, that's tricky. <laughs> oh, but you think that the, the former and the beetle mating is fine, is it? No, no, the, the former can eat the beetles. That's fine, right? So, Sorry. Right, so the cobra, the cobra is there because spitting cobras, they, they spit venom out through their fangs. They have a hole at the front of their fangs, right? Yeah. And that hole is actually rifled. This is an amazing thing from evolution, right? So the, the inside of a gun barrel, you know, we rifle so that the bullet comes out spinning and maintains an accurate trajectory, right? turns out that the spitting cobra's fang has a hole in it which is also naturally rifled so the fluid the venom comes out in this incredibly sharp jet so evolution has already done rifling mm. you know it's done targeting it's done the hard work it's done the hard work all we've got to do is put the stuff together and where's your crowdfunding page <laughs> i think everyone's into it uh, yeah i mean uh, who's in <laughs> Yeah, of course you are. Of course you are. You're not monsters. Uh, what about yet? <laughs> yeah, I uh, what about um, 
What about flight then? Because uh, to be fair, in the show, they, they to me, they look a, a bit hefty. Yeah, Do you know flying, what I mean? flying is tricky, I have to say. Uh, but, I mean, so, so we actually, we outsourced this one, didn't we? So, so we, we spoke to Dr. Michael Habib, who's at the University of Southern California. So he does a lot of, uh, of work for TV, sort of in designing monsters and stuff. He's got a, a book coming out called Flying Monsters. Uh, so he's the perfect person to ask uh, whether a dragon could really fly. Of course he is. So the dragons in Game of Thrones, I think, represent some of the best creature design I've ever seen. But, of course, they live in essentially a magical world, and there are some suspension of disbelief and some artistic license taken with the physics. And in particular, there's really no way that an animal that size could fly, at least in Earth-like conditions. If Westeros has the same kind of air density as Earth and the same kind of gravity as Earth, which we might expect it does because all the other creatures that live there seem to be similar to our size and shape and things of that nature. The humans are not uh, somehow very different. But interestingly enough, flying animals can get quite large. And we know this from the fossil record. There were giant flying reptiles related to dinosaurs called pterosaurs. These animals sometimes were over 300 kilos. The wingspans were about 10 and a half, maybe even 11 meters. And these animals would have stood on the ground on all fours, actually, with folded wings, about the height of the largest living giraffes. The very largest ones might have been big enough that if you could teleport them to the present, you might be able to saddle up and get one rider on there. I don't know how to ride a dragon. Nobody does until they ride a dragon. What if he doesn't want me to? Then I've enjoyed your company, Jon Snow. But of course, those animals were still a far cry from the size of the dragons in Game of Thrones, which, instead of being hundreds of kilos, are probably many thousands of kilos. They've got all this scaly armor, they've got big tails, they've probably got more hind limb muscle than they need because they really should be pushing mostly with the wings. They have to have a lot of muscle power to fly, and that puts a lot of force on the skeletons. The skeletons have to be very strong, but they can't afford a lot of weight for that strength. So the skeleton has to have a high ratio of strength to weight. And it does that by being very hollow. So pterosaur skeletons were very hollow, even more so than that of most living birds. But there's just no way that you could get the strength to weight ratio that you would need out of the skeleton. There are strict limits on how truly giant a flying animal can be. And the Game of Thrones dragons are well above that limit. So there is going to have to be a bit of suspension of disbelief. Yeah, I thought too big, probably. But I like the flying giraffe. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, but I'd tell I think that was just a size comparison, but okay. <laughs> oh, oh, I must have misunderstood that. So, uh, so we'll do, we'll do a quick rundown of the questions. Firstly, could you build an ice wall that big without using magic? Uh, no, no, but you could build like a decent size ice wall and it would last for a bit. Yeah, it's not impressive, is it really? Yeah, but ma- magic's This is really, why we need magic's, magic. Magic's really key. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How bad is incest really? Not that bad. Not bad at all. <laughs> Third or fourth cousin, sweet spot, get involved. Mwah. Thank us later. We would like to hear the stories, wouldn't we, genuinely? I mean, you know, get would. in touch if, yeah. if it works out. Yeah, and especially if you've got an unbelievable underbite. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and lastly, could a dragon really fly and breathe fire? Fly, not yet, not of that but we're size. working on it. And then your, yeah, your nonsense scheme. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> this could work. And with that, good night. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> 
Science Sesh is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. It was produced by Eli Block and L. Scott. The executive producer was Harry Watson. And special thanks to Alan Bittles and Mike Habib. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks, it really helps. And you can also find us on Twitter at science underscore ish. And we do have a book out. <laughs>